I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. John Fowles, Russell Banks, Paul Bowles, T.C. Boyle, Ray Carver, Carolyn Forche, Annie Dillard, Richard Ford, Louise Glick, Nadine Gordimer, Jory Graham, Donald Hall, Robert Hass, Donald Justice, Stanley Kunitz, Galway Cannell, Philip Levine, W.S. Merwin, Czeslo Milosz, Joyce Carol Oates, Robert Pinsky, Stanley Plumley, James Purdy, Charles Simic, Mark Strand, Chase Twitchell, Natasha Trethway, James Tate, Campbell McGrath, Ruman Alam, C.K. Williams, Tobias Wolf, Charles Wright, Richard Wilbur, Dennis Lehane, Anthony Bourdain, Amani Perry, Charles Bukowski, Patti Smith, Leonard Cohn. You might be wondering, what do all of these writers have in common? Well, they and many more have all been published by Daniel Halpern in either his literary journal Antaeus or by his publishing house, the Echo Press. Often their work is found in both. On today's edition of The Literary Life, I speak with Dan as we usher in 2021 and celebrate him along with the 50th anniversary of Echo. Dan, welcome to The Literary Life. You know, you and I have been friends since I became a bookseller close to 40 years ago. And before I knew you, I was first drawn to those kind of really remarkable books that you published uh, when I first opened, books that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, my admiration for your books led me directly to you. And, um, and even today, I view you as a mentor. You know, I view you as someone whose shoulders I stand on. Um, it's hard for me today to explain what the world was like for a bookseller in the literary world 40 years ago in the early 80s when I started. 
And I can only imagine that for you, it's even more of an act of imagination for someone to grasp just how frontier-like it must have been in 1970 when you started Antaeus magazine, coming on the heels of the 1960s. And then a year later, in 1971, came Echo Press, the press that has your, your stamp all over it. So one of the things that I thought about as I'm doing my first podcast of 2021, as we say goodbye to this most miserable of years, 2020, um, I just thought it would be most fitting to usher in 2021 by acknowledging and honoring the profound impact you and Echo Press has had on all of our literary culture um, over these 50 years. So this is the 50th anniversary of Echo Press, and it's 50 years of your vision and sensibility. And as I welcome you to the Literary Life, Dan, I give you the most heartfelt of thank yous for all that you've done for me personally, for every reader out there listening, and for our entire culture. And if that hasn't embarrassed you enough, I don't know what else would. <laughs> well, Mitch, that is it's so kind of you, but kindness is your trademark, along with your intelligence. I would just want to want to say one thing to you about what you just said. If you stand on my shoulders, you're standing on very shaky ground. <laughs> That's the Dan that I love. That's exactly the Dan that I love. Um, I'm, I'm up for it. You know, I can handle it when it goes a little bit side to side. That's all right. I'm a little shorter than I was when I met you. <laughs> um, to the ground. But, you know, so I thought what we could do is let's just talk. You know, I mean, you know, so many people know what you do now because you've been able to stay relevant for all of these 50 years and you've never rested on your laurels. But I want to start at the very beginning. You know, I know that you were born in Syracuse, but I always, always think of you as an L.A. guy. Um, I and left Syracuse when I was three years old. And my only memory of Syracuse is riding my tricycle um, on the sidewalk and singing um, Navy songs that I learned from my father. Uh, and I moved to Los Angeles in, uh, well, in 1948, I would have gotten to Los Angeles. We moved to the Valley. We lived in Sherman Oaks in, in those days. Uh, and then I basically grew up in Los Angeles, except for three years in Seattle. My father got transferred there. He was was, he in the mil was your dad in the military? No, he had been. He had been a navigator in, in uh, the Korean War, uh, B-52s. Um, but he was in scrap metal, hmm. was his job. And he got transferred to Seattle. We went up there for three years, which were a great three years for me. I was a kid. I was in like sixth grade, fifth grade. But I remember those years pretty well. And then we moved back to Los Angeles where I... I uh, I spent the next years until I, I left California in 1968. You grew up then mostly, you know, in the late 50s through the 60s, really, was your influences. Um, were you always a writer? Did you always write? 
No, no, I, I was not a good student. I worked on a fishing boat out of high school uh, while I was in high school, actually. Um, I was not a good student. I, I didn't like school. Um, I was not a reader. You know, the last two years I worked out of, out of Catalina, off Catalina on a, on a sport fishing boat. And I did that for those two years. And then I went to San Francisco State where I had a roommate who was one of the original surfers with a beard and blonde hair. But he was a graduate student doing work in English literature. So we would talk about, you know, various books he was reading, War and Peace he was reading, Anna Karenina. He was doing the Russians. Uh, and he wrote poetry to his girlfriend who lived in the dorm next door. And she was this very, um, very small, sweet, young woman who he was in love with. And he would go out at two in the morning and read her poetry that he had written for her, which uh -huh. she loved. Her roommates loved it less at two in the morning. <laughs> and I thought, you know, well, that, that is, um, that's a special kind of guy. Uh, so maybe something to writing poetry. So uh, there was a girl that I was very fond of, not reciprocated, um, and I wrote her poems. And I don't think she was a big poetry reader. It was either that or me. So I, I, I want to say that it was my <laughs> lack of uh, meter and rhythm that that um, dissuaded her from pursuing a relationship with me. Is that how you thought of yourself first as a poet? No. No, because I had a bad experience. This was this was San Francisco State um, that I went to my first year of college. Um, and I had to take what they called, this was in the time before euphemism, I had to take a course called Dumbbell English. <laughs> and that was for all the people who scored aggressively low on the SAT, on the English side of the uh, test. And it was pass or fail. Uh, and you just had to take it. And then, then you were finished with your English requirement. So after the third class, my professor, Dr. Freund, his name was, he called me in and he said, look, you're, you're not going to pass this course. So just drop it and we'll figure out something else so you can you know, eventually graduate. And I forgot to drop it, of course. And I went in and the test was you just wrote an essay, whatever you wanted to write. So I wrote an essay and it was graded by the entire English department. And he called me in. And he said, well, you had to take the test because you forgot to drop the class. And to my amazement, you passed. That's but I just want to say, I don't ever want to see you in another English class <laughs> in this school again. And I said, don't worry. I never will. And I never did. But I did notice walking out of his office, there was a book on his desk. And it was a portable checkoff, which was complete anathema to me. The, the name, I'd never heard of it. But I was curious what kind of man reads Chekhov. So I went to the bookstore and bought the portable Chekhov and I read, didn't like the plays, but I loved the short stories. And I think maybe that was the first body of work that actually made me think literature was 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 valuable, valuable to me in, in some way. That so was the beginning. What was the next step? The next step, um, I went to uh, travel around the world for a, for a, a year, and I, I did that uh, by myself. And that was the biggest change, I think. Um, being on my own, um, seeing the different cultures, um, meeting up with people, and then always reading. 
You know, we would we would trade off paperbacks. You know, you'd go to a youth hostel and you'd be reading a penguin edition of something and um, you'd finish it and you'd, you'd switch it off with somebody who would finish their book. And you know, I was reading probably a book or two a week. Mm. Uh, I came across uh, Albert Camus was, was, was something that was made a big impression on me. Andre Gide, I ended up reading everything that had been translated by Andre Gide into English. Uh, I'm not sure what, what the appeal was with Gide, but he struck some kind of note. Um, and then I came back to California and I had been drafted in the Vietnam War um, when I was in Baghdad. And uh, I was on my way to India. I had to turn back so I could get back for my physical. I applied for conscious objection. There had been a Supreme Court case in which a, a person, I think his name was Dan Seeger, um, won a case in front of the Supreme Court that said if your moral beliefs ran parallel to a religious person's beliefs, you were entitled to the CO classification, 1AO it was called. And I, I may have been the first person in California to get this because it had just mm -hmm. happened. And I asked to work in a um, uh, psychiatric home for, for adolescent kids. And because I asked for it, they put me in a, a regular hospital to work for two years to the Cedars of Lebanon. And I worked there for two years and met some pretty amazing people there. Uh, and I finished my college in those two years and then went to Morocco and that was the end of California. For wow. And so you began your travels again, but there is a little bit of a link that I know that I've, you've told me about. And that is while you were at California, while you were in college, you did, um, you met Paul Bowles, right? Yes, right. At that point. And was that the time you went to Morocco after you met Paul? I had been to Morocco on that year away. I had spent some time in, in, in Tangier and loved it. Loved Morocco. Loved the Berber culture, the music, the food, um, just, just the atmosphere there. Uh, and I was invited to go to a party if I read The Sheltering Sky which I read and went to the party and I met Paul and he said, um, we, we, he had gotten there, he was there for like 10 minutes and he said, do you have a car? And I said, well, you know, I mean, everybody has a car in Los Angeles. Uh, and he said, would you mind driving me back to my hotel in Santa Monica? That was like a 45 minute drive. Right. Uh, and I, so I said, sure. So I, I drove him back. We talked about the novel a little bit. Um, I had him sign it. And he signed that, that book. I remember the inscription. It was, things don't happen. It depends on who comes along. And I had mm -hmm. no idea what that was going to mean. And he was the one who came along. Right. He told me about Tangier. He told me about the, the Moroccan brotherhoods, um, the trance dancing, told me about the desert, Just told me about Morocco. And he said, you really ought to come. Come and see me. And I was just finishing up my CO two years. So I um, did that and then I went to Morocco. Okay, so you're in Morocco with Paul Bowles. So tell us about Antaeus, uh, the magazine, and how it started. So he, after one year of being there, um, 
he said, I had applied to Columbia because I was writing poetry at that point. And because I was such a bad student, the idea of getting into a, a, a graduate program at Columbia was impressive to me, if, if to no one else, but certainly to me. <laughs> and he said, why don't you put that off for a year and start a literary magazine? I didn't know what a literary magazine was at that point. He said, I have a lot of old magazines from the 20s and 30s and 40s that you can read through and get an idea. Stay for another year. I'll pay for the issue. And I thought about it, and I called the dean of uh, the graduate program at Columbia, and I told him what it was. He said, you are welcome to wait for a year. That opportunity is something you shouldn't miss. Start the literary magazine with Paul Bowles. So I did, and it was a public education. I mean, I, I, um, the first year was kind of like my graduate school. Bowles gave me books to read every night and then would quiz me the next morning. But they were a very, it was a very eccentric reading list of writers like Judah Barnes and right. his wife, Jane Bowles, um, James Purdy, you know, people that, Nobody talks about that much. Alfred Chester. I've got, as you know, I've got, I've got the very first edition. The very, I've got Antaeus number one. And to give everyone out there an idea of who the contributors were in the very first edition, it's John Berryman, Jane Balls, Paul Balls, Lawrence Durrell, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, John Fowles, Tom Gunn, Jersey Kozinski, W.S. Merwin, Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams. Yeah, Is I it, wrote to all of them, and, and, and you know, it had nothing to do with with me because I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. But they, but I wrote, them. yeah, and I wrote, and I said, "I'm starting this magazine in in Morocco," which I think made a big difference. It, it was kind of exotic, and I'm doing it with Paul Bowles. Do you have anything you can send us? And of course, everybody did. Um, I remember writing to John Fowles after having read The French Lieutenant's Woman, and I, I said, I, I love that book. Um, I would love to publish something of yours in the first issue. And I'm curious how you pronounce your name. Is it, you know, Fowles or Folds, being English? And, and he wrote back and he said, here's, here's, here's some poetry that I, I wrote. You can have it for the magazine. And as far as the pronunciation of my name goes, think Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> that's great i like that and he invited me to lime regis to stay oh, wow. with him for a weekend and did you uh, and go? go i absolutely went and i got to go to all the places where the french lieutenant's woman took place even the place where the spiders were in that little well wow well you know it's interesting to me and what is astonishing is that you were 25 years old right when you did all this you were 25 years old. You were, you, you were, you were self-taught, as you've just explained. You know, this, this came from a kind of place of passion for you, right? So you were just enamored with this whole world, clearly. It was, um, I think probably the best thing that could happen to you, no matter what it is you do, is not knowing anything about it before you begin doing it. It was completely a public education. I learned day by day. I didn't know very much about anything in terms of literature. I knew that um, once I started reading, I knew I loved poetry and I was writing poetry. Uh, I knew that poets like W.S. Merwin and James Wright and 
early James Dickey um, were poets who really meant a lot to me. And then, you know, older poets. But, you know, and then poet, poetry and translation, I think one of the things that Bowles did is address the fact that if we did a literary magazine, it had to be international, which meant translation. It couldn't just be American writers. And that was incredibly valuable to me to have that as a kind of guiding. And incredibly ahead of its time as well, right? Well, I mean, he introduced me to some amazing people. He, he told me about Calvino. Yeah. Calvino, you know, wasn't very well known at that point. Um, he introduced me to, I actually met Jean Genet. It didn't go very well. Jean Genet didn't like white heterosexual Americans. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty mean and I didn't speak French. So it was a weird lunch, but it was Jean Genet. You know, I was sitting with Genet and I had read him and it was amazing just to be in his company. Yeah. That's so true. it was very lucky. It was very lucky, but it, well, it was, you know, day by day. But, you know, when I hear you talk about all of this, the Chekhov, the, the uh, poetry and translation, the stuff about food, when you talked about all of that, the travel, in many ways, your publishing and your life as an editor and a publisher has been um, an extension of all of those interests. I mean, one, you, were, you were really one of the early people to have published all of the short stories of Chekhov, right? Isn't that something Echo did, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, that was, that was one of my, that, I loved that project. We did, we published the um, entire short stories in the Constance Garnett translation. Right. 13 volumes, I think it was. I remember, I remember, they were amazing. It was so much fun to do that. And then we got well-known writers to write, instead of a blurb, to write a paragraph, a long paragraph that went on the back. And we got Eudora Welty. I mean, we had, I remember everybody now, but just a series of great writers making extended comments about the work of Chekhov's uh, short stories. Well, that kind of publishing was just so exciting at the time. But then, you know, there's Chekhov, it, it, there's a direct line, I imagine, to you, you know, reading Miwosh, right? When you were reading him for literature and translation, he went on to win the Nobel Prize. I so associate him with you and with, you know, with, with, with your publishing in so many ways. If I'm not mistaken, did you, did you publish Captive Mind? Was that you guys? No, we did not publish Captive Mind. What happened is he published the first book called um, Selected Poems that Seabury Press published. Uh, it must have been in the kind of mid to early 70s. And Philip Levine said, there's a poet who, whose work you really should know. And it's this, this, this Polish poet who's living in Berkeley called Milos, and you should publish his book. At the same time, the Village Voice asked me to review the selected poems. So I uh -huh. reviewed the selected poems, and um, Milos sent me the manuscript which he then called the Berkeley Poems. <laughs> Terrible title. Really? We immediately retitled Bells in Winter. The Bells in Winter, and that's right. I that can was the first the, book we did. I see the cover actually now. And uh, one day 
he called me and he said, I have good news for you, Halpern. I said, what is that? He said, I just won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I said, well, that's pretty good news for you too. As well. <laughs> and he invited me to go to Stockholm with him. And I have to say that, that was one of the highlights of uh -huh. my life was to be at that ceremony and to be with Milos among his Polish friends, eating the Polish mushrooms they brought wow. to him from Poland. He was such an elegant man. He was such a gentle man in so many ways. We had him at the book fair probably because of your doing one year. And he came and he, he was reading and his wife, I think, had just died. So he ended the reading with a poem that he had never read before in public. And it was a poem about his wife's death. And the whole audience was just, you know, basically in tears from it. He, I'm sure. He was such a such a great guy, but you know that's the story of your publishing. So, so from Antaeus, you were able to fund issue number one. Issue number two became a little more difficult to fund, right? Yes. Um, and that began um, a kind of relationship you had that led directly to, if I'm not mistaken, to Echo Press, right? That's right. Um, when I got to New York and I tried to, to raise money to pay for the second issue, um, I got a subscription from someone named Drew Hines, who I, I thought was a, a, a man, but it was on H.G. Hines stationery, the little pickle. <laughs> and I remember asking the then head of Viking, Tom Ginsburg, I said, who is this Drew Hines guy? And he said, it's, it's not a guy, it's a woman. It's a wife of the, the head of H.J. Hines. And you ought to pay attention to it if you're looking to raise money. <laughs> so I wrote her and I said, you know, um, I have two problems. One, I have no bank account since I had no financial history in this country at that point. I just arrived back in New York with $5 and a broken arm, actually. Um, and I, had no, I couldn't open a bank account. And um, so I can't cash your check, number one. And number two, there's no next issue for you to subscribe to. And she said, let me um, talk with you about this because I've always wanted to have you know, my own magazine. Uh, so why don't you come to this little gathering I'm having next week? And so I went, I was wearing my you know, blue jeans and t-shirt and it was up on 52nd Street. And I got in the elevator and uh, a woman walks in and I look at her and I know she's familiar. And uh, she got out of one of the floors and the guy in the elevator, the elevator operator, I said, she looks so familiar, who is that? She said, that's Greta Garbo. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. <laughs> so I, I got out to go meet uh, Drew Hines and it was a big party and the person down there said, Go up the stairs and you know Drew Hines is up there, you'll meet her. So I go up the stairs, and at the top of the stairs is Governor Rockefeller and Mayor Lindsay. And I thought, I'm I'm definitely in the wrong place. <laughs> so I started back down again, but there was a woman behind me with a salver of drinks on it. And I couldn't I had to keep going up to the top. And I went into the room trying to find Drew Hines, and it was filled with, you know. It sounds like name dropping, but I mean, I walked in the room and there was 
Truman Capote asleep on Lillian Hellman's breast. And, you know, Keith Richards was there. It was just like, you looked from one to the other and it was like a nightmare um, or a dream, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> and I never did meet Drew Hines that night. So she said, uh, let me send you a check so you can pay for the second issue. I said, well, I can't cash it. So um, there was some back and forth about it. And I, I met somebody at Chemical Bank named Jim Brady. And he felt sorry for me. He said, okay, let me open up an account for you. And that was my first bank account on 30th Street and 5th Avenue. And that's Chemical was, Bank. This was 1971? 19, 1970. 70. And I met Drew and she said, look, I, I'll back the magazine, but you have to start up press because I want to have a publishing house. And I'll introduce you to Tom Ginsburg, who was the head of Viking then, pre-Penguin days. And I met with Tom and he said he would distribute our books and that I could learn publishing from one of his people. And that echo began that way. But still you had Paul Bowles was still involved with Antaeus to some extent at that point. Oh yeah, I sent Paul manuscripts and we, we sent letters back and forth like three times a week. Uh, and he always wrote the same kind of letter on onion skin, always one page. They were all identical in every way except content. So what was your focus at that point with Echo? Well, we, yeah, we had no money. So what were we going to publish? So it occurred to me that one of the things that we, we should do and that I wanted to do was to do something called the neglected books of the 20th century, which would be to bring back books that had gone out of print. And in those days, the big publishers didn't care about their backlist. So we could go to Random House or Viking or you know whoever and say, can we get a license, seven-year license on any book? And they were happy. They thought you know we were foolish buying buying rise to these books. But we bought, for example, The Shuddering Sky from New Direction for $150 per term of copyright. Uh, and that was one of the first books we bought, and that seemed to be the way to begin Echo with a with a title by by Paul. You had Cormac McCarthy. You bought right. You bought Cormac uh, McCarthy. Later, we did um, in Antaeus. We wrote to a lot of people and asked them for a list of their neglected books, and uh, we put together a list of oh hundreds of books. And one of the books that kept recurring on the list was Cormac McCarthy's The Orchard Keeper, the first book, uh, his first novel. And we went to Random House and asked if we could buy it. He had never been published in paperback. So we bought that for, I mean, $200, whatever it was. And we bought all of his books through Blood Meridian. That was the last one we bought. And then when All the Pretty Horses came out, um, I had a we had a dinner with Cormac McCarthy and his agent Amanda Urban, and um, people from Knopf, and they said, "Would you give up the rights to these paperback editions? Because we want to do a whole thing with vintage, and you know, blow out all the pretty horses, which we think is going to be hugely commercial." And they were right. They they certainly were right. Um... But you were right too, because you didn't only buy backlist, you had some good successes, if I remember, 
with new writers that you discovered. They weren't, I mean, they're not so new now, but they were at the time. I remember personally uh, being enamored with a book that you had published. I think it was probably right around the time that I met you. It was a to Toby Wolf's book yeah. uh, in the garden, in the garden. Of the of North American Martyrs. Martyrs. That was quite a collection of stories. It was really... It was a great collection. You know, a great writer who went on to write many really wonderful books. Um, that, was, that was a real thrill to publish that book. Give me some other highlights of that period when you were independent, when you were, you know, in those early days of, 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 of Echo. What are some of the other things that you remember? Certainly there's the poetry that you did as well. Well, I was going to say the poetry was so meaningful to me. And that was the one thing we could compete with the, the large trade publishers because they didn't do much poetry. Um, in those days, there wasn't much poetry being published. Um, so we had a chance to, to, to buy collections by beginning poets, young poets, poets just starting out. So we bought Robert Hass's second book. He had one of the Yale series of younger poets. Um, and he became a really close friend. And to me, one of the great living poets, period. Um, we published Sandra McPherson. We did Jory Graham. We did Louise Glick. Who, um, we published her second book. Her first book was done by I'm going to forget the name of the book, but uh, press. She, but just won, um, she just won the Nobel Prize this past right. year. Right. So we published her for 30 years. Um, she became a close friend. I mean, one of the things about publishing, like I did, um, is we weren't getting authors because we were paying them a lot of money. So instead of authors becoming friends, it was more often that friends became authors if that makes any sense. You also taught, right? You taught at Columbia starting in 75, I think it was. Taught at Columbia in the MFA program there for 20 years. And, um, and there are some amazing poets that came out of there. People like Campbell McGrath. Campbell McGrath, V.J. Shashardry came out of there. But many, many good poets, many good fiction writers came out of that program. And at the same time, you began and you founded the National Poetry Series, which had a remarkable, uh, you know, history and still does of introducing new writers. Uh, talk a little bit about the National Poetry Series and what you're yeah, thinking of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the National Poetry Series and you certainly have been part of it. It was your idea to create a prize for books written originally in Spanish and then translated into English and published um, dual language. Uh, and we did, we started that about, I don't know, was that five years ago, more? Yeah, we did it through the Miami Book Fair. Miami Book Fair and Miami Dade College. Yeah. Uh, and and we, we, um, we've done that every other year for the last whatever number of years. That's been very valuable. But the idea was, um, I gave a, a talk at the Library of Congress about how we could get more poetry published and how to do it, how to do it correctly, in my opinion. And I gave the speech and nothing happened. And a couple of years later, I got a phone call one Sunday morning. And the guy on the phone said, hi, this is Jim. Um, I read your, your speech, the Library of Congress, you gave a couple of years ago. And I'm really interested in that. And so I thought he was a poet who wanted to be published. Um, and I said, you know, it's Sunday morning. It's, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock in the morning. 
why don't you call back at 11 o'clock? And he said, sure. So 11 o'clock, he calls back and he said, look, your speech is really good. Uh, I'd like to uh, back, back it. I'll put up the money for it if, if you agree to run it. And I said, Jim, uh, what's, what's your name? He said, Jim Mitchner. And I said, Hawaii? And he said, uh, he said wow. um, whatever the current book was, you know, it wasn't Hawaii. Hawaii was from the 60s or something. But What um, year was this about? This was 1978. Wow. And he said, I'm going to be in New York. Can I come and meet you and talk about backing the series? So he came, and I remember two things. And this may sound a little negative, but it's not. He was the, the most lovely man. And we became pretty good friends after this. He came to my apartment. It was in the summer. And it was hot as hell. And he was wearing a, a dark blue, a light blue wool suit and tie. And he came to my apartment. And we sat there and he, we talked. And he, I remember him saying, you know, people don't necessarily take my work that seriously. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, you've done pretty well. I mean, famous writer he said yeah but I, i'm much more like faulkner than i am like other commercial writers <laughs> I said, well um i don't know faulkner's work that well <laughs> <laughs> That's, well you know he he had a miami background too i mean a miami interaction because he when he was doing caribbean he was living here in miami and doing research at the University of Miami. And even he and his wife, his wife was really kind of a interesting woman. She went to Antioch in the 40s, very liberal. He was a very liberal guy as well. I just remember him being extremely formal, you know, in many ways. A he was really, very formal. Really yeah. formal guy who loved John Philip Sousa, I remember. And that <laughs> sort of thing. But he also funded... When he left Miami, he funded, it was really interesting, he funded a Caribbean Writers Institute, which led to the work of uh, Edwidge Danticat being published. Wow, really? Ed came from Brooklyn to be in that writer's, you know, workshop that he had. Um, no, he, he was he, very, very generous man. He was a Quaker, and they believe in giving all their money away. Right. And he he was... He, he backed the National Poetry Series until he died. Did he uh, really? God, I didn't yeah. know that part of the history. Wow. So would he come to those dinners that you had as well? No, we, we didn't have those dinners <laughs> yet. He was, already, he was already gone by then. Because one, the one of the things that's really interesting that I've always felt interesting is that Dan brings together once a year their fundraisers for the National Poetry Series, and he has a dinner. And at this dinner, it's not just poets and people involved in publishing, but it's actors. It's anyone with any tangential interest in poetry. And you're, you've widened the circle to such a, there's such a beautiful tribe of people that are involved with the National Poetry Series. It's something that's, that's a, quite a legacy. It's, it's been a, a great thing. I think we've published now over 200 books in the series. And we've never met, we've published five books a year. We've never missed a year. A lot of our authors have done incredibly well and won National Book Awards and Pulitzer Prizes. We published Billy Collins' book. Yeah. We published Terrence Hayes. You know, one of the things that then happened with Echo, which we need to talk about is, you know, 
you were publishing, you know, I, I guess you were like a bookseller. You know, I was, people ask me, are we a not-for-profit? I just say, no, we're a no-profit business, <laughs> what we are. And I think a small independent publisher is very similar to that. Uh, you, you know, just if you listen, just hearing you talk about the people who've supported you over the years, you've always had to look to other people to help support you because you were publishing things not, not primarily for the commercial value, but because they were things you felt that needed to be published. Um, but, then, but then you understood, I think, you were very pragmatic and you wanted the legacy of Echo to continue. Uh, and you did some really very, very smart things. And one of them was hooking up with Jane Friedman, right? And Jane Harper. Friedman was an old friend of mine and had um, become head of HarperCollins uh, at that moment, 1999. And we were having lunch one day and she said, how small press publishing? And I said, it's really difficult because we were not making money and it was harder to raise money. And we had bought the press back from Drew Hines and we didn't have the, the funds to support it. And we were publishing too many books in order to make our payroll and rent. And it was not the kind of publishing I wanted to do. And she said, why don't you just sell it to us? And I said, fine. And that was it. It was the simplest transaction. And I remember going to work. She said, okay, so you start, you start July 1st. And um, here, you just go to the office and, you know, I'll give you just a little bit of advice and you won't understand it, but trust me that it will be true and useful to you. She said, when you get there, since you've never really worked in a publishing house before or really anywhere else, I never had a real job except for the post office. And she said, um, you'll have questions. Don't ask. <laughs> it took me years to understand that. I love that. And the first, the first impasse was one day on my door, I was sitting in this office and I said, nobody knows I'm here. How, what, what do I do? I mean, I'm not sure exactly what I do. I had no staff. I had no, I didn't know what anybody else was doing. I didn't know anybody else in the building. And this editor, Marion Meneker, who was a really fine editor in those days, knocked on my door and he said, all the editors are kind of wondering why you never respond to their emails. And I said, what emails? I had never had emails before where I came from. And he came in and he showed me the computer and he said, here's where your emails are. These are all the things you can do with it. Uh, and he said, you have quite a few emails there. And I said, yeah, I said, there, it looked like there were like 2000 emails. <laughs> and so I highlighted them and right, X'd them so. out. And he said, why did, why did you do that? I said, what do you mean? You know, you just, you just wiped out all of your 2000 emails. And I said, well, I can't answer 2000 emails, but now I know, and I will respond <laughs> to emails. And I don't think there's ever been a day where I've shut the computer off, where I haven't answered every email. You are really quick with your email answers. You are amazingly great. Uh, I just, I can't stand the thought of, and I've told all the people who've ever worked with me, um, you have 24 hours, you have to answer every email. Even if it's somebody you don't want to answer, just say not relevant or whatever it is you say, you have to get back to people. You can't not answer your emails. You are really, really good at that. And what, I think what, what happened 
was um, Jane understood, because I think she came from vintage, right? So she understood the value of your backlist, clearly. Because was it before or after Harper that you bought the Bukowski stuff? Was that, that was after. That was after. So that was a huge purchase when you took on John Fonte and Bukowski, right? At that we point. Took on Bukow we, we wanted, what we wanted really from Black Sparrow, they had, they had a great list. And, and John Martin is a great publisher. Um, one of the most important presses of the 20th century. Uh, and, but he was getting old. And he and I had been in touch often over bowls because he had some of the bowls novels and we had some of the other ones and i called him and i said you know we have a chance to to buy what we want to buy is bukowski um and fonte and the rest of the paul bowles books and you can sell the rest you know to whoever you want and i think eventually he sold them to godine bought them the rest of the list and uh, he got paid a nice piece of change uh, he knew that Bukowski would be taken care of. That's what he really cared about. And I think we've done a really wonderful job with Bukowski. He's sold everywhere in the world. Um, he may sell more licenses in more foreign countries than any other author that we have. You might, not remember, you might not remember this, but you were, we were having lunch in our courtyard and there was a waitress waiting on us and she had, it was a... I remember. Remember it? The writing had, on her, on her, on writing her, on her arm. And it was Bukowski, right? It was a tattoo of Bukowski's right. And yeah. I said, I said, well, here's Bukowski. It was like that scene out of Woody Allen where he brings Marshall McLuhan out. I said, well, here is Bukowski's publisher right here. It was really very funny. I mean, Bukowski in our culture, you just, it's hard to imagine you know, of a particular age, the effect that he has. It's almost like Kerouac among people of a certain age, what he's able to do. Um, but he's discovered by every generation. That's what, what's so amazing. And in every country, I mean every country, from Albania to Italy. I mean, he, right. he just reinvents himself. Uh, this remarkable body of work. Yeah, no, it's really true. And then... And then it allowed you at that point with Harper, you really began to acquire things that possibly you didn't have. You were able to use your who you are to acquire things and your editing uh, mojo. Because I remember meeting you in those days where you introduced me to Leonard Cohn. You were so kind enough to you know, have me at a dinner that you had for one of Leonard Cohn's right. books. You published Patti Smith. But then I think what I really think about, and this is the marriage of who you are, it's, it is tragic, but it's the marriage of who you are, all of your interests rolled into one person, and that's Tony Bourdain in a lot of ways, right? Would you say that? Um, well, I mean, he certainly represented some part of, of what I loved about publishing and about the world. I mean, we... we um, we got started with Kitchen Confidential, which was originally published in hardcover by Bloomsbury. Uh, his friend Karen Rinaldi uh, published that book, and Bloomsbury was just starting, and I think they probably needed cash. And I had just gotten to HarperCollins. It may have been one of the very first books I published. Um, 
And she said, you could buy this book for, I shouldn't say, X amount, <laughs> um, and no less, but we need that much money. So I read the book, uh, and it would take a moron not to know that that was going to be a great book. I mean, that was no great editorial act on my part, for sure. Um, and so we bought it, and he and I became friends. Well, the marriage obviously did really well. It marries your love of travel, your love of food, and your love of good writing as well. I mean, Tony was a novelist at one point. Um, And and which leads me to talk to you a little bit about the whole food part of your life. Um, You are, I mean, this is Dan. Dan knows more about Miami restaurants than I know right? So Dan came down once and he said, there's, there's this amazing Nicaraguan restaurant off of 8th Street that we have to go to. And I had never heard of it before. And we go there and I think we're like the only table there in the middle of lunch. And it was really astonishingly good. So Dan, you're, you, you, where does that all come from? Has that always been you? Have you always, and you cook as well, right? You know, I mean, if you have to eat, you might as well eat well. Yeah, that's I think that that one follows the other. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a house a home cook. You know, I I enjoy cooking. It's it's a way of of distracting yourself and then immediately consuming your art form, which yeah. is which, especially during the pandemic. And a lot of people have learned to cook and learned to enjoy cooking during this lockdown because you can't go to restaurants. Uh, but I love following your Instagram where you, where you take pictures of all the stuff you're cooking. Well, it's good news. It's a, it was the only good news in 2020, I can tell you that, at least from my point of view. Uh, I think I, um, I like, I really enjoy, like, I like the carbonara you just cooked the other night. Without... Well, the carbonara is a really complicated thing because there is traditional carbonara, which, which the Romans want to you know, take credit for that. And I have many Italian friends who um, were very upset with the carbonara that I would make, which would, which would add onions and parsley and bacon instead of guanciale or pancetta. And every time I would post my carbonara, they would say, what is that green stuff on top? <laughs> and this went on for a long time. So finally, I made a traditional carbonara with guanciale, no onions, no parsley, um, pecorino, and parmesan. Really good al dente Italian pasta. And um, posted it. And I got all of my Italian friends back. You know, you're a publisher that has been able to stay relevant all 50 years. Um, I just read, I mean, I was so pleased to see at the end of this year, you know, other than Knopf, Echo Press, had more books on people's top book lists than any other publisher, um, which is pretty amazing for a, you know, a smaller imprint. Uh, people like Rula Malam, uh, Natasha Trethway, uh, all of those new people that you are publishing now. And you also have been able, and you were in the vanguard of publishing people of color. You know, it's really kind of amazing what you've been able to do and do you have any special sauce as to how you've been able to stay relevant like this? Is it, is it just, 
because you stay relevant and you enjoy what you do and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I mean, there are probably a lot of answers to it, some overly self-serving answers. But I would say, first of all, I have a, a very, very politicized 27-year-old daughter who's just graduating from law school. <laughs> and I said to her, Lily, if there is a way for you to make less money than a poet, you are going to figure it out. <laughs> and by God, she's graduating from Yale Law School in May, and she's going to be a public defender, and she will make less money than a poet <laughs> or an editorial assistant starting in publishing. But I'm, I'm so proud of her. And I, oh, I she's one she of the ones. She's a lovely, lovely person. She really but is. But she has kept me in line. And when I stray, if I ask a, a question about gender that she doesn't approve of, I hear about it. And um, I, I think she's made me aware. She's made me, she's allowed me to be aware of what I need to be aware of. And one of the things that um, I've been happiest about in the last couple of years at Echo is to have found some amazing young black fiction writers and nonfiction writers, especially nonfiction, um, that my editors have worked on. Denise Oswald um, has, has been editing um, a group of them. And we have people like Imani Perry, uh, who's writing a book about the South, which is amazing. Uh, we have David Young, who is a wrote a remarkable memoir, uh, Salamisha uh, Tillett is, is working on a book for us um, on Nina Simone and her, the world of Nina Simone, the political world of, wow. uh, of what she's doing. Um, and that, that's so refreshing. I mean, anybody can publish Hemingway, but to find a new young voice who is breaking new ground and writing in a way that nobody has written before, that's the only reason really to be going into publishing. Oh, that's beautifully said, Dan. And that, and I think that that, that really sums up everything you've done. I mean, you've, every, every one of these last 50 years has been with eyes wide open, looking for, you know, always saying why not, and looking for something interesting and unique and different. Uh, your enthusiasm spills over to all of us booksellers and to readers as well. And, and that's part of the legacy of Echo and you and uh, these last 50 years. I couldn't imagine being a bookseller. There would be such a hole if Echo hadn't been part of my bookselling life. So, so one of the questions, you know, you're an editor, um, you're a poet, you're a teacher, you do anthologies, you're a publisher, you founded series, you come up with ideas. At the very core of who you are, who are you? What do you think of yourself as? What would you, you know, I know that's a difficult question and probably unfair and probably you need a few more glasses of wine, but you know, is there, is there one above the other that you see yourself as? No, I mean, it's, it's a hard question and it's a question that has come into greater focus during this pandemic and being um, for, for much of it isolated and being alone, you come to know yourself in a, in a different way. And I think that's true for everybody, whether they're with a the family, whether they're with young kids, whether they're alone. Um, I, I think the relationship that everyone is gonna have to themselves 
by way of 2020 is going to be altered, some in positive ways, some in less positive ways. And, and for me, um, one of the things I've been able to do is read much more than I, w I was able to read um, uh, when I was working in the office because there was so much more time. And I was able to read things that I just didn't allow myself to do because of work manuscripts and, and editing and things that I had to do. So I was able to go back and read, I read Movable Feast, which was a completely different book than what I had read when I read it the day it came out, literally waiting in the bookstore for it to, to appear. And one of, the, one of the things, I've been spending a lot of time with Russell Banks and Chase Twitchell um, at their home, which, is, which has been a godsend for me, so I haven't been alone you know, for those months. But um, one of the things we were talking about is that the difference is you read the first time Faulkner and Hemingway and Juna Barnes and Jane Bowles and you know whoever it is that you're reading that you want to read. And these are older writers and they're an older generation. And then you read them again at my age and they're younger writers. And this is the same as for movies. Like you're watching the movie stars and they're older people when you're a kid. And then suddenly they're young kids. And so you understand it differently. And, and theoretically, you've learned things along the way about life. So you understand what's going on in the movies. I'm thinking of last year at Mary and Bob, but I won't do an explication of that now. Uh, so I, don't, I got closer to myself, and I liked parts of it and disliked parts of it. was able to see, you know, the, the negative and positive parts of what I imagine my personality is. So, well, have you been writing? Your question. It does. And have you been writing during this period as well? Have you been able to do any writing? Yeah, I've been writing. Um, I wrote a novella, which I can't talk about. <laughs> and um, I've been writing poems for the first time in a while, which I really enjoy writing. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to publish a book of poems again, but the beauty of writing poetry is being in the language, just being in it. Right. Um, you know, watching the words, watching what line breaks can do. Uh, it's it's um it's it's a it's a pleasure to to have the the time to do that. There was a beautiful essay that uh, Ron Charles, the book critic of the Washington Post, wrote, and he was writing about poetry and how, you know, he he always approached poetry with a little bit of skepticism because he couldn't understand completely what was being said until he gave himself over to it and just allowed the words to flow over him and took the poetry, took the poem on its own terms without trying to put a construct to it. It was really, and it, it really helped me sort of, you know, when you talk about the language, the words, it really helped me to sort of find a new level of enjoyment as well. Um, which I mean, can I say something about Ron Charles? Uh, yeah. I think he's amazing. I, I, I love everything he writes and the way he thinks about literature. And he's completely right. And the reason for that is people think they don't understand poetry. That's bullshit. Right. They don't understand it because they've been taught to have to explicate it and talk about what it means. Fuck the meaning of the poem. 
meaning is what it is to you. You're in the language, you're reading it. All you need to know is what you know at that moment. And if the poem adds up to something in particular that you can articulate to yourself, better for it. But you've lost nothing if you come away with nothing more than the experience of inhabiting that language for whatever minutes it takes to read the poem. Well, Dan, that's beautiful. I'm getting chills. I wish I could have taken one of your classes, actually. I mean, it really, it's really beautifully said. And I agree with you about Ron. And, you know, we're so fortunate to have people in this world that care about the word. And you mentioned Russell and Chase, and you talk about friendships. And, you know, I just, you know, you, 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 the reason why I say you, that I stand on your shoulders is, You've taught me throughout the time that I've been a bookseller. You've taught me how to enjoy this life, how to enjoy this literary life, the friendships that you make, you know, that it's not, it's, it's something, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passion that we're all involved in one way or another. And that's, that's what we do. It's a life. And, um, I can't thank you enough for, for your friendship, for your mentorship, for Echo, for Antaeus, for all that you've done these last 50 years, and I just wish you another 50. <laughs> and I hope to be there when you reach 100 and whatever. I hope to be right following you, still the young kid behind you. But in the meanwhile, would you, would you be able to read a poem? Um, I would love to hear you read a poem. I should say that you've been incredibly generous in your response to my life. <laughs> but um, I don't think there's anybody out there who's been more friendly to writers and to publishers and to readers than you have. Um, in fact, I know that's true. Well, thank you. Dan. I hope you don't cut that out of. <laughs> okay. I have it. Perfect. So it's just it's a poem I wrote this summer. Short poem. Um, I was just sitting on the porch in uh, Keene, New York, Russell and Chase's house, and I was watching these two moths fly around. You know, I always see a white moth in the daytime flying around. And, um, I, I watched them, for, they, they came back day after day. I watched them for three or four days. So this is a poem called Mating Tango. All day, I've watched two white moths trail and braid each other in flight over the pond and grassy run up to the tree line, bright white against the green-leafed paper birches and beaches, then vanish within a cumulus waiting to appear again against the unyielding blue that is blue only at this great distance, but a clear invisible just before us as the two white moths tangle in this invisible, weaving the air in their flight pattern, or maybe a mating tango whose steps are airborne, free of the earth and the possessive rules the earth imposes upon its residents. What is the program they follow and what determines the calligraphy of their commingled flight in late August? How do they know each other and how do they know each other back. Uh, thank you, Dan. That was beautiful. You know, I hope to see you soon in the real world. For sure. Thanks for inviting me, Mitch. <laughs>